So Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 22. You can also just listen along. Um, if you're not familiar with this part of the Bible, Luke was one of the people who wrote about the life of Jesus. And this part of the, the beginning of his, of his gospel, we call it, um, the book that he wrote, um, he's talking about how Jesus was born. What's, what's the story there? Um, so we're diving in a little bit, little bit right after Jesus is born. So I'm going to read for you here. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That's, that's a lot of information. Again, if this is uh, something that you're new to, what that all means is there was traditions at the time for those who worshipped God in the temple, into the Jewish temple, and one of those traditions was when the baby was eight days old, you would go and offer a sacrifice to say, this boy child is, we, we dedicate him to God. So that's what's happening here, is Mary and Joseph are following the traditions of their people and their faith. They get to the temple, what happens? Now, there was a man in Jerusalem, the city where the temple is found, and his name is Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We're gonna, I'm going to explain what that means in a second. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Messiah. That's a word that means anointed one. So it's someone who receives a mark that shows that God has chosen them. And when it's used in this context, it means they're the awaited savior. The people who worship at the temple believe that a savior is coming. So he, he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen this savior, this Messiah. Moved by the spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. When the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I'm ready to die now. That's, what he's, that's paraphrased. That's not in the text. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Translation, not just for the people who worship in this temple, but for everybody. That's what that means. And the glory of your people, Israel, and also us, the people he belongs to. The child's father and mother, you can only imagine, you're walking into the temple to do the thing, you've got an eight-day-old baby, and this old man runs up to you, grabs your child, not recommended in this day and age, please. <laughs> takes your baby and starts saying, salvation is here for everybody, everything we've been waiting for. Of course they marveled. They were like, I think they already knew at this point this was a special baby, but still, that's a pretty shocking thing to happen. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. So he has a quiet word with Mary. This child, he tells her, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. We're going to get back to that. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to Mary and Joseph at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So it's Advent. We're talking about the Christmas story, baby Jesus being born. Why are we starting at the end? <laughs> He's already born. What's going on? It's a, it's a good question. We will hear the rest of the story. But what's interesting is even though this part of the story comes after the birth of Jesus, there is an important part of it that predates the birth of Jesus, and that is the longing of Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna have been waiting for decades. They are both elderly people. They have seen life. They have watched the Roman occupation happen to their land. They have seen people die. They have seen babies be born. They have seen weddings and funerals. They have outlived spouses. They have been waiting a long, long time. And that waiting predates Jesus. And suddenly, all that longing in this moment is fulfilled. The answer is here. The thing they've been waiting for is here. And so much of the nativity story, that's another word for the story of Jesus being born, so much of the nativity story is about promises being fulfilled. It's a theme all throughout. And that's really never more clear and obvious than this story with Simeon and Anna meeting Jesus. And this is Advent. This is what Advent is. It's, it's waiting and fulfillment and also something else, which we're going to talk about. And this Advent, our church is choosing to explore in particular the women in the Nativity story. So let's begin with who is Anna? Who is this prophet Anna? So first of all, she's given this title, prophet. It's a, I think it, con, it can conjure up a lot of images. Some of those images might be like a crystal ball, like someone who can foretell the future. It might, you know, if you are someone who has heard a lot about Old Testament prophets, it might conjure up images of like a person in the desert wearing pelts and, you know, living a very aesthetic life. But what it means, quite simply, is a person who speaks God's truth. A person who speaks the truth of God. And sometimes that means directly speaking God's words to people. God saying, tell my people this. Sometimes it means repeating what we know to be true about God. But here is what is true as well. It is a high honor. If Luke is writing in this text and calling her a prophet, he is putting honor on her name. He's putting respect on her name. He's saying Anna is someone that we should listen to and be aware of her faith and the way she moves with God. 
Also, it's funny because as a modern person, I read this and I'm like, okay, all you're telling us about her, she's a widow and your, her dad's name and like, can we get a bit more about Anna? But what's interesting when we dig into the historical context of when this was written, this again is actually like a pretty unique way of talking about a woman. We don't know her husband's name. He's not important. She is not defined by his family, his name. It just simply tells us, actually, she's moved on to a new stage of life in which it's just her worshiping, praying, fasting, being at the temple all the time, and prophesying to people. That's the part of her life that is, is interesting in this, in this story. She is also named by her father and her tribe. That's not a thing that a lot of people are named by in the Bible. And it indicates that they are of importance to their people group, that they, they are a person that that tribe wants to claim, that it is an honor for them that she is a part of that tribe. It also locates her in the hist- a long history. That tribe has a long history, and she is part of it. So the way she is named, again, tells us this is someone important. This is someone to take notice of. This is someone who is probably going to be an example to us, whose faith is worth noting down in the account of Jesus's life, which is what Luke is doing in this whole book. So that's who Anna is. I think too, and I was, I was reading about this and there was a South African theologian whose name I forgot to write down, so ask me after the service and I'll send you the link. Um, but she, she pointed out that Anna is a powerful example of aging as an active member of the community. It doesn't matter that she's in her 80s or older, depending on how we count her widowed years. And, you know, she could be older, but she is quite elderly. And she is a widow, which often in those times meant someone who didn't have a lot of power and influence. And yet here she is. She has an encounter with the living God, like literally in the flesh, Jesus. And she immediately goes and talks to everybody about it. She is an active member of her community. She is elderly and she is out there and she is encouraging people and she is speaking the truth to them. She is bringing hope. Simeon, who is elderly, also does this. And his example is this really relational thing. He he comes close to Mary and he tells her the truth about what's to come. And the things that he says are, are hard. That this baby boy will will reveal the hearts of people, will cause the falling and rising of people. And he says, a sword will pierce your heart, Mary, will pierce your soul. What does he say? Soul, pierce your soul. That must have been really frightening for Mary at the time. What did that mean? But I wonder if when 30 some years later, Mary is watching her son be persecuted arrested, killed, killed by the state in a way that where she had no power to do anything. I wonder if remembering Simeon's words in that relational moment was a solace to her, right? This was going to happen, rising and falling, revealing the hearts. I knew this day would come. And how much more 
when after seeing her son killed, she sees him rise again, and she suddenly maybe finally fully understands that this is God. The words of Simeon and Anna from three decades earlier are fully revealed. Suddenly it all makes sense in a new way. Had Simeon and Anna not been faithful to engage deeply with the young people around them, to not speak truth into the lives of people who they probably knew they weren't going to get to see play out. Simeon and Anna are very aware that this is a newborn child, that the things that they are saying, it's going to take decades before they happen. And yet, they are not afraid to say the hopeful, true thing, even if it might not happen before they die. They engage deeply. And this is an incredible example of aging. And I hope with humility and with recognition that I am nothing but 34 years old to say to the older people, we absolutely need you. We need you to be Anna and Simeon. We need you to declare that hope and that truth to us, even if you think you might not see it come to pass to plant those seeds for trees that maybe not even I will sit under, but my children will. And to say thank you for all the times you have been those people. And to encourage you to continue to be those people. The specific thing that Anna says, that Anna talks about, is this really political concept. It says in verse 38, that she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel doesn't feel like a super maybe immediately real thing to us today. But to her and to her people who she's talking to, it is an immediate material political thing. Israel has been occupied by a violent military force, the Romans. They live daily with economic hardship, with their bodies being in danger of violence, unsure of who's in charge, unsure if it will ever end, hoping that it will. And so what Anna is saying about the redemption of Jerusalem, the redemption, what she's saying is someone will come and get rid of the oppressor. And it was a common belief held by Jewish people at the time that the Messiah, the Savior, remember we talked about that earlier, the promised Messiah and Savior, they, many of them believed that he was going to be this like warrior king. They believed that he was coming to wage a physical battle with swords to get rid of the occupying forces so that they could finally be free. So that the hope that Anna is speaking to people is, is that hope. And it's true that if you know the, the story of Jesus, it plays out a little differently. He didn't come so much as warrior as he did as servant. He didn't come to wage a physical battle, but a spiritual one. He didn't come to fight violence with violence, 
but to bring a radical peace that sits with the marginalized and feeds the hungry and visits those in prison and clothes the naked. And what we have to remember is that that is in the same spirit. That if Anna had seen how it played out, and I believe she did just from beside God instead of from this side of earth, she would have said, oh, right, I get it. That makes sense. <laughs> that, is, that is the thing that we were waiting for. That is the thing that we were waiting for. But Anna lives in this tension. It's a tension, you may have heard this phrase before, sometimes as Christians we call it the now and not yet. The now and the not yet. Anna has seen the living God, the baby, and in that moment she believes that all her longing is fulfilled. She goes and she talks about people. Jerusalem will be redeemed. Jerusalem is redeemed. We will be free. We are free. And yet she is also fully aware that it will be decades before she sees it. And she is fully aware that she may die before she sees it come to pass. The not yet. It is true, and it hasn't completely happened yet. And I took great solace in reading Anna's story because I feel like that's our entire story as Christians, is the now and not yet of it all, and how that can be frustrating, and that can be crazy making, and that can be the place where we wonder most, is this real? Is this true? The now and not yet means that as Christians, we believe that Jesus saved us. It's done. And that Jesus frees us to live as totally, completely loved and able to totally and completely love. But we are also real people in a real world, and we would be liars if we didn't also admit that the world around us feels really broken. Our own lives are full of brokenness and pain, and we are constantly longing for all of creation to be fully healed and fully restored. That we're just longing, that we know that it's not done yet. We have worship songs of like, it is finished. And I sing them and I believe them. And I also go through my phone and I cry every day. I'm a crier, so I cry every day. It's not like, because I care so much, just... I'm a crier, so I cry every day saying like, is it finished? Because look at this. Look at this new hell. Look at this new pain. Look at this new way that humans have found to not be whole and loved. It is finished, is it? The now and not yet. The now and the not yet. You know, as Christians, we live in that tension like Anna glimpsing the fullness of salvation and hopefully declaring hope into unknown timelines. It's been 2,000 some odd years since Anna encountered Jesus in the temple. It's been a long time. And this idea of now and not yet, as I was writing the sermon, I was like, it's a, it's a great concept, but it can sound a little bit esoteric. A little bit like, what a nice turn of phrase to sum up 
a wide, huge, complicated tension that we're all living and are probably very aware can't be summed up in a few words? Is it just a phrase? And I actually think that, yes, it is just a phrase, but it also sums up something very real, very earthy, very real lifey. I wrote that down. I regret saying it now. Let's go back. Very earthy. Um, and I want to share with you today a little bit of my story with Jesus to kind of illustrate how the now and not yet is the tension and the reality of our lives as Christians and that there is hope in that. More specifically, that there is deep hope in that. So I encountered the living God when I was 16. I had grown up in a Christian home and in church. I was actually very aware of God and I believed in the reality of the spiritual world 100%. I knew my Bible pretty well, and I was pretty good at coming across as a Christian. But it wasn't until I was 16, and my life had kind of completely fallen apart, which is a story for another day, that I really met Jesus. I was hurting. And you know, in retrospect, I think I was probably suffering from pretty severe depression at the time as well. I felt isolated and lonely and desperate to be rescued. My sweet parents are here today and they can attest to the deep well of pain I was in by the end of grade 11. And you know, at that time, in, in my darkest, loneliest moments, every question I had was about love and more specifically about yearning for a big love. I desperately wanted an experience and a relationship of big love, of love that kind of just made me feel like I wasn't a mess and I wasn't terrible and I wasn't broken. All my questions were about that. And I think for many of us at 16 that was true and I think for many of us at 65 that's true. So one day we're at church. My, the practical pieces of my life have fallen apart at this point. We really, I think as a family, had no clue even what the next day was gonna hold for me. And I really barely knew why I was at church anymore other than it's what we had always done. And I had disappointed my parents so much by then that it, the least I could do was go to church with them. So we're there, it's a big auditorium. It's like thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people, lights on the stage, you know, and there was a guest speaker that day and she was talking about unconditional love. Now, at the end of her sermon, the speaker started inviting young people to the front. She was like, hey, young people, self-defined, self-select into that category. Young people, come down to the front and I'm going to pray for you. I was like, no thank you. She kept inviting young people. She kept inviting young people. And it's funny because these days, I don't think I would go to a church service like that, to be honest. I don't, I don't think that I would feel at home. 
I don't think that I would, I think I would have a lot of questions. And, you know, if I'm being totally honest, I would maybe probably judge it as kind of coercive, just, you know, being completely honest. But here's the irony. In that context, all those years ago, my whole life changed. <laughs> Thousands of people, speaker, come on, young people, come on, come to the front, I'll pray for you. My feet took me before my brain realized. And I was standing there, and I had my head held down like this. There was no way I was going to lift my head up. I knew what I was. And I was sad, and I was lonely, and I had made so many mistakes and bad choices, and I had hurt other people, and I had lied, and I had, I didn't even really like myself very much. So how would I possibly do anything other than hang my head? And the speaker reached over the stage, and she gently tapped my head, and she said something along the lines of, darling, God is the lifter of your head. Lift your face to heaven. You are loved. Man, and in that moment, I suddenly knew. <laughs> Isn't it wild? She prayed for us. She prayed for all of us. There was hundreds of us. This was not a, a unique experience for me. I, I wish I could go talk to the hundreds of other people there wondering what their revelation of Jesus was that day. Because God, God loves a crowd. God saw me in that crowd, but he was there for all of us and the ones who didn't come down, you know? But that day I had a revelation all of a sudden. I knew down to the very core of me that I was loved. Not when you fix things, not when you smarten up, not when you're not such a mess, not when you stop being such an attention seeker. Just, oh my gosh, you're so loved, Ashley. <laughs> and that changed my whole life, really slowly. <laughs> Everything changed that day and nothing changed that day. I walked out of there exactly as hurt and broken <laughs> as when I walked in, but I had an encounter with the living God, and that encounter helped me to know that I am loved, wholly and completely. It is finished. End of the sentence, I am loved. That love also was that big love of God wanted so much more for me. In that love was promises of healing and wholeness and goodness and, and joy and peace that I couldn't even imagine at the time. It's been 20 years since that. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's been 20 years since then. And it's taken a lot of therapists and a lot of mentors and a lot of time for the promises contained in that whole complete love to play out in my life. The not yet. The now of that day meant that I have danced every day that I've sang to Jesus. That's what happened. It was so funny. It was so cheesy. They would, the next Sunday, Worship came on, and you know what I did? I was 16. <laughs> I literally ran to the front of church 
and danced. And I'm not a great dancer, guys. It was, just, it was a lot of arms. <laughs> I feel like what I was saying was, I'm here, Jesus. See me. I know you love me. And I just, I did that for years. And I still do that. Because when I remember that encounter with the living God, you know, I, I have to dance. I don't know another thing to do. But it also took 20 years, guys, <laughs> to get to here. It took so long. It took so much help. It took so many other people. The not yet. The not yet. So that's, that's how I know the now and the not yet is real. That I can live hopefully into that tension. That I can say, you are loved and, and God's desires towards you are for wholeness and completeness and for peace. Even if I know who I am talking to or the community I am speaking to is facing huge adversity and it may not even be in their lifetime that they see it come to pass. But our hope needs to be longer, guys. Our hope needs to be longer. It needs to be something that sustains us across generations. And I believe that we can do that when we know that Jesus is okay with us saying, with trembling voices, I believe in you. You don't have to be certain. My goodness, you do not. <laughs> Anna had no way of knowing if what she was saying was really going to happen. She didn't. The Roman occupiers were at their door. They were there. They would leave the temple and they would see evidence of their lack of freedom. She knew she might die before she ever saw freedom come to pass. And she said, it's coming, it's happening, the redemption of Jerusalem, peace is coming. And she lived like it was true. That's the wild part of the now and not yet, is we live as if it's true now, because then we participate in making it true. So you can love your neighbor. You can practically and materially help your neighbor and receive help from your neighbor and know that you're right. It's not a solution to every bad thing in the world. We're not going to be naive, pretending Christians here. Can we agree to that? Can we agree that we're not going to lie to each other and say, oh, it's okay, bless it. Yeah, you know, the Lord intended. I don't believe that the Lord ever intends harm or evil or pain to come to his people. But I do think that Jesus came near so that we're never alone when it happens and so that we can have a hope that lasts more than one trial. Because the 20 years that passed between me encountering the living God and now, so many more awful things happened. If you had told me that day, hey, by the way, the church is going to do this to you. Hey, by the way, this is going to happen to your body one day. Hey, by the way, this awful betrayal is going to happen. I maybe would have been a little overwhelmed. <laughs> It's probably how Mary felt when Simeon leaned in close and said, you've been, your soul will be pierced, like with a sword. But you know what? I can also say that I probably would have said, okay, let's go. I am loved. 
Let's do this. And that's what I hope for you today. I hope that you have a revelation of who the living God is. I experienced that as the unconditional love of Jesus. That's what changed my life. I believe that that changes everyone's life, but I also know that we are each uniquely and fearfully and wonderfully made. So it means that the revelation of the living God to you, God, God will reveal himself to you in a way that means something to you. Your story is going to be different than mine. And good, good, because then we'll get a better picture of who God is. And I want to pray for you guys today. And my journey with Jesus has led me away from come to the front. Isn't it ironic how our lives go? So I'm not going to say come to the front and I'll pray for you. What I am going to say is I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you after the service if you want to come talk because I believe that the Holy Spirit is here and ready and I can pray for you to have a revelation of who God is. You might know Jesus. You might have known Jesus for a long time like Anna and Simeon. Well, he, they knew God and then they met Jesus to be specific. You may know God. You could still ask for a revelation. You may be like, I sort of get some of the things you're talking about, but a lot of it I don't. Let's pray and let's answer those questions if we can. And you know what? It doesn't have to be today. It's not like contingent on this service and this sermon being prayed for. It's actually the rest of your life is available for that. I'm not the only person who can pray for you. If I asked people to raise hands, probably most of the congregation would raise their hands to say, I, I can pray with you for a revelation of the living God. But that is, that is my hope for us at Wellspring here today that we would have a revelation of the living God so that we can go out actively into our communities and speak hope about the fullness of what Jesus is doing, has done, and will do. Now I'm going to pray for us all together. God, thank you that you are living and active, that we're not talking about stories that are done, that we're not saying the Holy Spirit did this and wishing that that could be true today. No, it is true now and today. Your spirit moves. Thank you that you filled your word, the Bible, with examples of people whose faith and whose hope was long, who in the face of evidence that pointed to other things were willing to hold on to your promises. And Jesus we want this world to experience wholeness and gentleness, God. I want this world to experience your gentleness. And in all the questions I have, in all the concerns, in all the doubts, with a trembling voice, I declare the hope of Jesus. And I pray that people would have a revelation of you, God in the way that you have prepared for them, in ways that I can't even begin to understand. Thank you for the privilege of being part of this community. God, I pray that all the hurt, all the doubt, all the joy, all the excitement that's in this room that is unspoken because I happen to have the mic today and others don't, but I pray that everyone would know that that is precious to you and you know it and you are aware of it and you are about it, God. And I thank you, God, for who you are. I thank you for Advent, the longing and the hope. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.